It did. So, you know, my book grew, my own personal book grew to about two and a half million of commission. In 1995, I had a partner and his name was Richard. And Richard was running the, the office and I was running the sales process. And it turned out one day the checks were bouncing with insurance companies. And so I went in and I took a look at everything and I was like, what the heck is going on here, Richard? And he couldn't explain it. And I said, you know, you told me you had agency management experience. He was about seven or eight years older than me. Turned out he didn't know what he was doing. We were $900,000 out of trust, meaning we had used money that wasn't ours. And I said, Richard, you're no longer in charge of the office. I'm going to be running the sales force and managing the office from now on. You can either stay or you can leave. I don't care, but you're no longer running anything. And then he stepped aside. And From a large family as a child to a large insurance network, Terry Scully was meant to bring people together. Terry's work in building insurance partnerships has brought together hundreds of agencies and thousands of people. The leadership he has shown has inspired many to follow him into the future. Learn more of his story and the lessons he learned today on The Founder Spot. The Founders Podcast. Listen to the stories of how everyday extraordinary people start amazing businesses. Hear how they overcome the odds and find success in the entrepreneurial world. The up and down, the good and the bad, and everything in between. And now, your hosts, Jordan Hansen and Brandon Minard. Hello and welcome everyone listening to today's episode of the Founders Podcast. I'm Brandon Minert here with my co-host Jordan Hansen. And on the show today, we have Terry Scully. Terry is the owner and founder of Scully LLC. He's had a long career with insurance at various agencies and companies. I recently met Terry as, as my agency, United Commercial Insurance, is now a part of his network of insurance agencies. And I've enjoyed getting to know Terry and and more about him, learning from him. So Anyway, without further delay, Terry, welcome to the show. Thanks, Brandon. Thanks for having me. Yeah, excited to have you on. Uh, Terry and I met, I believe it was last year a little bit, and then we went down and and talked to you more in Arizona and met with your son and met with everybody, and it was a lot of, it was a lot of fun. Uh, we are a part of the same insurance, I guess, partnership. And so, um, Terry, we only have really a couple subscribers and two of the main people that listen are our moms, my mom and Jordan's mom. And so, um, we, we get a lot of feedback on want to know more about what the person does. So if you wouldn't mind explaining as if you were talking to my mom or Jordan's mom, what it is that you do and what the job you have is currently. Certainly. So I'll speak as if I'm speaking to my own mom and, um, she's also my biggest supporter. So, what I do today is is help find partners 
who own insurance agencies around the country that would be a good fit for our partnership. And in doing so, I meet a lot of uh, nice people who are running businesses all over the country in different specialties. And we look to figure out a way that compels them to consider joining our partnership group and becoming partners with you and I, Brandon, and the other seven or eight people who are partners with us. Gotcha. And so your partnership group is just, it's just insurance companies, correct? You're not looking for anything outside of that industry. That's correct. It's strictly insurance brokerage. Okay, perfect. Gotcha. So why would someone want to partner with you though? Well, I think uh, proven strategy of success and generating wealth, as well as being concerned with culture and the well-being of employees and clients and insurance company distribution partners. And finding all that in one uh, package is sometimes difficult. There's lots of buyers out there, but many of them are engaged in simple things like just cost cutting, you know, buying an agency and getting rid of the founder and cutting costs and just trying to squeeze that lemon dry, you know, get as much as they can out of it. That's not our plan. Our business plan is culturally focused, it's partner focused. And what we look to do is bring guys like Brandon into our fold who then continue to run the business that they built, but are partners with us in all the other businesses. The goal being to collaborate, cross sell, to fuel each other with energy and ideas. And, you know, my, my job is to both find those people and capitalize those outcomes. Got it. Yeah. I mean, it's not, it's, it's, it's common in the insurance industry and in a lot of industries to, um, I guess, compile multiple agencies together and benefit from the increase in staffing and premium and all of the different talents that those agencies combined have. And when you go to an insurance market and say, instead of just my agency, I have the power of 10, then you typically can negotiate better commissions or incentive bonuses or different things like that. You know, that's sort of one of the attractions to it. Um, so if you're looking as far as like, why would insurance agencies want to be a part of it? There's a lot of factors, but it's very common in insurance world to do this, right, Terry? That's correct. And, and you can also extend your capabilities to handle the client's needs. So uh, as an example, we bought an agency in Newport Beach, California. Really, all they do is marine insurance and marine insurance across the U.S. could be boats of different kinds. It could be marinas, could be pleasure craft like jet skis. I don't think Brandon does any of that, but I'm sure he has clients that need that insurance. And so now he has a partner that can provide that. And another example is we've got a network of uh, two agencies we've acquired that do nothing but high net worth personalized insurance. And clients like we have at uh, the AMI uh, insurance agency in Newport, people of some wealth, especially if they own yachts or large cabin cruisers or marinas. And whereas AMI in Newport Beach only provides the insurance for their boats, our other, our other people can do that high net worth insurance for all their personal needs. So it just broadens what we can offer. And in some cases to the same clients. Got it. Awesome. So let's do it. Let's start way back, Terry. 
Um, currently, you reside in the dry, arid climate of Arizona, but where are you from originally? Born in Chicago, age six, moved to Kansas City, stayed there until I was 18 and graduated from high school, then went to the University of Arizona in Tucson. Oh, gotcha. Learned how to have a good time, <laughs> joined a fraternity and lived with 63 other guys for three years. And the sororities paraded through our house every weekend. We had parties. It was a lot of fun. Gotcha. University of Arizona, I believe. Isn't that like top of the list? One of the tops of the list of party schools in the United it's States? It's probably dropped a few notches since I left. But oh, while I, I see. There, you got it. it. the top school. In the <laughs> gotcha. So born in Chicago. So your parents, they moved around a few times, or I guess one time to Kansas City. Um, did you have a large family? Did you continue to move around within those cities or what was that story? Uh, large family. Yes. I was second child of eight. So total family of 10, four boys, four girls. I was the oldest boy, second oldest child. And what that means in a Catholic family in the Midwest is you're the guy that pushes the lawnmower every week, rakes the leaves every week, shovels the driveway every week, paints the house, cocks the windows, repairs anything around the three acre property that houses 10 people oh wow three acre property in chicago kansas city oh kansas, kansas city, city. Yeah. gotcha and, I was and remember chicago. yeah so this was this is after age six and so most of the other kids sit in the window during the winter sipping their hot chocolate that sounds like at you and pointing <laughs> at you through the window that sounds like the classic older sibling complaining about the younger sibling not yeah. having to do enough work you would know that because weren't you one of those younger guys yes. that just watched? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So then your father, what did he do for a living or what was his occupation? So he owned a food brokerage company in Kansas City. And I worked at that company from age 14 till uh, age 21. And that that food brokerage company, kind of not unlike a um, insurance agency in that it didn't take possession of the property, but it sold the property to the client, the end user. And in our case, the firm that we had was also a master broker, meaning that we had other brokers that we hired to represent products that we had the exclusive for around the country. So, uh, I mean, you sounds like you were busy. I, one of eight children. And one second to the oldest is your oldest, your sister. Is it a sister? Then? Yes. So you were the oldest boy and that's why you were doing a lot of the chores. I mean, do you look back on that fondly or are you kind of like thinking, Oh, I hated all of that. I had to do. I got, Brandon and I both had to work a lot. I remember Saturday mornings were busy at the Hanson family for us. We were every morning was a lot of, a lot of work. Do you remember fondly that time or is it kind of? No, I, I, I have very fond memories of that time frame, And it really is what cut the cloth. I think for the, person I developed into. So don't regret so, you're, you're glad you're grateful for that. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I learned a work ethic and that turned into a way to make money. But, you know, by the time I was 12, I was cutting the lawns of my neighbors or people up and down the street or raking their leaves or shoveling their driveway. So I was fully employed from age 12 on. So when you were living in Kansas city, young Terrence, growing up, it sounds like you're pretty um, industrious. I mean, what were your jobs? Did you always work just at your dad's, or your father's food distribution? 
or did you do a lot of other jobs around? What was your experience there? So my, my first job was working for myself, mowing lawns for the neighborhood. And then what I did is I saved that money up and I bought a riding lawn more so that I could be more efficient. I could add more of the neighbors to my route, right? And then I could put a shovel on the front of it for driveways. So Terry went from shoveling by hand to shoveling by, you know, automated purposes. I then bought a um, Coke machine and put it in my parents' garage so the neighborhood kids could buy cans of Coke for me or from me, right? I both, probably both. Mom would would take me to the equivalent of a Walmart. I'd buy it for 10 cents and sell it for a quarter. That went over well for about a year until my parents became the, the source of funds for my seven brothers and sisters and so they said, it's time to get rid of that thing. It's costing us more than we want to spend on <laughs> Coke for you. But the good news was through these different ventures, I was able to raise enough money that I pay for my own first car when I was 15, had it sitting in the driveway waiting to turn 15 and a half and get my learner's permit. So what was your motivation to do these? Mow the lawn? I mean was it the money was it the stuff like a lot of times people are working for the money some people have a goal of the item well i i think initially it was you know i had to do it because i was told i had to do it at our house right and Mm -hmm. and then once i learned how to do it 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 just kind of rang a little bell in my head if 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 i wanted to buy you know the latest you know um album i wasn't going to get an allowance for that i had to go out and make it so I went out and made the money. And and then when I was, you know, thinking about getting a car someday, I, I was like, well, I'm going to have to go get the money. So it was it was like um, motivation for the end goal of, of achieving whatever it was I was trying to acquire. Did your dad, did he always own the food distribution company until you graduated and moved on? Did he finish his career there? Well, what caused us to move from Chicago was he was um, a vice president of a company that transferred him to Kansas City to manage a food plant there. And then he saw an opportunity to get into the food brokerage business. So I would have been maybe eight years old when he started his first company. And I grew up, you know, notionally with the idea that, you know, my father was the boss. That kind of motivated me to be my own boss. And then when there was an opportunity and I was old enough, at least in his eyes, I would ride with his salespeople during the summer months and learn that business. Was that, I mean, the food distribution or food brokerage, was that as you were growing up, was your dad saying, okay, Terry, this is your future. Like you're going to take over for dear old dad. You're going to, you know, work with me, be in business with me. Was that something you'd look forward to at that trust? Was that part of the plans? That was part of the plan. And so if you think about it, each summer I would, I would work in the firm, go back to, to school in the fall. And then I did that for the three years of college as well. In the fourth year, I wasn't sure if that's what I wanted to do, but I hadn't really, you know, spent my energy trying to build uh, an attractive resume for some industry. I was really more focused on, you know, getting through college, enjoying myself, and then going to work in the family business. 
So I did that. When I graduated from college, I went back to Kansas City. I worked in the business for one year. I hated it. I hated the Midwest after living in the Southwest. My parents weren't getting along and they eventually divorced. Um, I was seeing a side of my parents, especially my dad, that I didn't like. And so when I saw the way he worked with people, he was a taskmaster, which is part of the reason why I try not to be that person. Um, belittling people that worked for him, things of that nature. That, that wasn't what I wanted to become. I see. So, so I left and I went back to, uh, to, to Arizona. So you named off like three reasons why you didn't. I mean, so your plan always, and you probably were somewhat excited until that last year of college to go back and work in the family business, right? That's true. Then you had three items you mentioned. First was like location-based um, and like not job-related, I guess is my saying. Family issues and then location you weren't excited about. Um, Kansas City. It was Kansas City, right? Yes. Kansas City. You weren't excited about Kansas City anymore. And then the final one was kind of just the relationship with your dad, which is kind of work-related. Yeah, and although the relationship didn't fall uh, badly between he and I, it did with between he and my mom. And in witnessing the way he was the boss rather than a leader with his employees, I I, I did not like that. I didn't like that view into seeing who my father was. So the work itself wasn't bad. No, I I actually enjoyed the work. Okay. I see. What did you study in college? I got a degree in marketing in the business school, the Eller School of Business. Gotcha. Okay. And then, you know, studying in marketing, thinking, okay, I'll go out and possibly do sales, work in food brokerage, and then you could do a lot of different things with that. Yeah. I mean, my first title in this little family business of 25 employees was vice president, right? Oh, gotcha. Not okay. bad. Felt pretty good. Yeah. Right into it. Yeah. yeah. Right to the, almost the top. <laughs> but only one year. Yeah. And then yeah. what? And, and so then I moved back to Arizona and I used my marketing degree to get a job. Uh, I became a Coke dealer. Oh, gotcha. Okay. okay. Yeah. Legal? <laughs> legal or illegal? <laughs> well, I mean, if, if, I, if, if all I say is I became a Coke dealer, that went over really well in the bars at night. When That's was, really good. You know, yeah. Sparks 22, 23. Hey, what do you do? I'm a Coke dealer. What about you? It's <laughs> like, you know. But it was Coca-Cola, the parent company. So my marketing degree came into play. Wait, on your resume, did you put, you know, age 10 selling Coke already? Because you had, you know, you kind of like had already, this is foreshadowed. I was a Coke dealer at a young age. And then again, <laughs> That's right. in my 20s. Yes. <laughs> Came back to it. Yeah, but I did not, you know, highlight it on my resume. Uh, maybe next time. Yeah. So, but you were always looking into the goal with the goal of opening your own company it sounds like right as you saw growing up as you saw your parents or your father running his own thing it seemed like you wanted and had ambitions to run your own company at some point and then you know be a different type of leader than what you had seen your father do is that i mean what was your I, mindset when you left i think that was my destiny although when i started at coke um i also kind of shifted and thought, well, this is a huge company worldwide, one of the best known brands in the world. For a guy with a marketing degree, it's kind of a holy grail job. If I did really well, I could, you know, move up the ranks and so forth and so on. What I didn't factor in is that I got engaged. The, the, my wife of 37 years was the person I got engaged to then. 
And in these big companies, when they say, okay, now we want you to come to Atlanta and work in the marketing department there with the, as the protege to the, the vice president of marketing, that's, that's a big offer and that's an important you know, decision. But as a single guy, I would have been on the plane the next day. My fiance was like, I'm not going to Atlanta. And she's from Arizona. Yeah. So our family's all there. Hard decision. Yeah. Right. Right. So I, I, I turned it down. And three months later, they flew me into Atlanta and they said, we really want you for this role. What's, what's it going to take? And I said, well, I'm getting married in about four more months. I don't think it's going to work. And, and they said, well, go back and noodle on it. But if you don't, if you're not willing to move with this corp, you can't move up. I said, okay. So I go back about two months later, they flew me back to Atlanta. And this time the guy with the cigar in one hand and the scotch in the other hand, the boss of the executive vice president of marketing, the chief operating officer of Coca-Cola basically says to me, Scully, you got to come to Atlanta. Otherwise your career is dead. Your voice. I, I, it was perfect. The accent. Yeah. <laughs> and I said, well, I understand. And I will try to convince my fiance, knowing full well that that wasn't going to happen. So I go back to Arizona and she's still steadfast. Uh, no, I'm not going to learn how to speak with a drawl. I'm staying here. You are too. So just get used to it. So I call and I turn it down and, and they said, well, we really, we really think you're missing out on opportunity, but you have till the end of the year to move on, find another career. As in leave the, leave, you, you lose your leave job. Leave the company. Yes. Yeah. Gotcha. And so I, you know, I, I, I was getting married in November. This was about September. So they gave me plenty of time. I, I interviewed with two companies. One was out of uh, Minneapolis Controlled Data Corporation, all computer oriented. The other was Wausau Insurance Company. Five interviews with both of them. Wausau was the first offer, so I took it. It was a business-to-business, middle-market, property and casualty insurance company sales role. How old? Are we right? probably 26, 27? 25. 25, 25. okay, 25. So, so you, you, well, you were only with Coca-Cola for a year? Or how, I mean, I guess that, that time frame years? went really quickly to me. How long were you there? Two years. And, and it sounds like during that story, if you really would have wanted to stay, would you have fought harder for it? I mean, was that something that you reminisce about? You know, what would have, have been if I would have taken that job at all? Well, so a little bit of background. At, at the reason why the marketing VP was excited about bringing me on was during a training school course at, that he held in Atlanta that I attended with my peers, he found that I was um, pretty sharp when it came to math, right? I was a really good math student. I did, I think I completed advanced calculus when I was a junior in high school, right? So I was, I was really kind of a math wizard and I could think really quickly on my feet mathematically. And there was some testing that we did back there and I was done a half hour before everyone else. And so he was like, let's go for a walk, right? We went for the walk and he was like, I, I like you. I think you'd be a really good fit in my in my department, blah, blah, blah. So when you get stroke like that, you you know, you feel good about yourself and, and you you like the other person. And 
So I was, I was genuinely interested in the offer, but I was more interested in the woman than I was the offer. Okay. So now this is, I mean, clearly you were exceptional at that point. I mean, one of the best, obviously in that group, um, that sounds young to me to be going to be the protege of the VP of marketing. Was it young? Yes. Yeah. That was young. So did you feel like you were kind of an exceptional person earlier in high school, younger? Well, you know, I went through really, you know, my first public school was the U of A, right? And um, so leading up to that, all Catholic uh, private schools, high school was a all-boy Jesuit high school, top 5%, test in, competitive. Most of my peers went to Notre Dame, Georgetown, um, Harvard, MIT, Hmm. uh, places like that, right? So... The expectation was that, yeah, I was going to do well in some fashion, either with going forward in academic uh, career and then into the work workplace or what have you. Got it. So, yeah, you were 25 and that's when you're leaving Coke because you had to. No other option. But they were pretty gracious with you. They said, hey, you, we like you a lot. You can't stay here, though, if you're not going to move forward. So you got to look somewhere else. So anyway, you found this job over it. Wasa, how'd you say it? Wasa, Wasa, Wasa. Yeah, so W A U S A U. There you go. So, what was that like? So that was a commercial lines producer in a captive scenario, selling only their product to customers in Arizona. Typical client was somewhere between two hundred and fifty thousand dollars a year and five million a year in premium. Which so it is was, very large, which which yeah. for reference is very, very large. I was going to ask. Very to large, me, yeah. I have no idea what that means. So that yeah. big. Yeah, big clients, right? Mm-hmm. Um, either because they have big fleets, big contractors, or because they're a big manufacturing company or they're a public company, things of that, that nature. And uh, I enjoyed being the only one able to bring that product to a customer. So it opened doors because I could sell that idea, that concept to them. Hey, if you want to quote from offsite, you got to get it through me. I'm the guy here in Arizona that is your contact. Uh, and so that opened some doors of opportunity to meet people at a fairly young age, fairly inexperienced, um, you know, history in the business, starting with zero, right? So you're just jumping into insurance, though. Was that an area of interest for you? No. Yeah, it just was the best job available at the time. Yeah, so if, if you had gone to college when I did, a, a computer was the size of an entire room. You'd spend about eight hours doing punch cards. You'd send it through that IBM computer, and about five hours later, you get a smiley face printed out at the other end. And you felt good about it. And I hated that. I thought, what a waste of time. Why would anybody ever do this process, right? So when this computer job opened up, I was like, ah, no, thanks. I mean, these things are worthless. They're just a big waste of time. A fad. They're, they're big rocks on your desk is, is all they are, right? Yeah, a fad, right? Yeah. <laughs> and, and I tell you what, in the, in the early 80s, that's, that's about all they were. That's interesting. And so, but then the insurance position, you know, you saw that you, said you thought you could do good in sales or what, what prompted you to take that one? You know, my, my criteria was, I don't want to work on weekends. I don't want to sit at, at kitchen tables. So 
no life insurance, no yeah. personal lines. It just so happened that this was business to business and I feel comfortable in that atmosphere. Nice. Okay. And how long did you end up staying at Wausau? I, I did well there. And, and one of my competitors hired me away, Jardine Insurance Brokers. Two and a half years after I started at Wausau, they hired me. I did pretty well there as well. And I stayed there for two and a half years until they went through a merger. In the merger, the nephew of, of the president of uh, the Jardine agency was an underwriter at Aetna. He wanted a job at our firm. So his uh, uncle gave him my book and terminated me. Oh, God. So did, was it no non-compete? I mean, you just kind of hopped over to a competitor, no big deal? No, there was a non-solicit. Okay. Meaning I couldn't take any of the clients, but there was no non-compete. Got it. I did, I did start an agency from scratch at that point. So once you went to Jardine, right? And how long yeah. were you there? About two and a half years. Two and a half years. So as is five total years in insurance. Is that about right? That's correct. So you're about 30. I was exactly 30, yes. Exactly 30. And then um, you kind of got pushed out. And surprisingly, because you were pretty good, it looks like. I mean, you had done well, but it was just... I mean, nepotism, I guess. I'm not trying to use a loaded word, but yeah, essentially it just sucked for you. Now, it, it did on the one hand, but on the other hand, it forced me to be entrepreneurial. Were you I concerned? Did. Like, was it a stressful? Like, how was your stress emotion level at this time? Well, the stress was more so familial, right? So I had a, a one year old son. He, he's 33 today. At, at the time, he was hooked up to a heart monitor. He'd been born with a heart problem. Oh, gosh. My wife was pregnant with our second child. And so from that standpoint, my wife was a stay-at-home mom. I was only making about fifty-five or 60000 a year at that point, which at that time was decent was money, good. but not great. Not mm -hmm. great. Um, so if I went to work for one of my competitors at that point, and I had several offers from a number of the agencies, you know, I would have been at 45 or 50,000 bucks a year and starting over again. I thought if I'm going to start over, I might as well start over working for me. Was your, was your wife, did she have a preference on where you went or was she always behind you? Do whatever you want, Terry, um, you know, gung ho, or did she ever say, look, let's just get a stable job for a little bit. Never once said that to me. So always was supportive. She understood that I had the intellect and the drive and the work uh, ethic. I, I didn't care if it took me a half a day, 12 hours to, to work, to, to succeed, or if it took me 18 hours, I was going to do it. Yeah. And, and what was your relationship? Just curious, going back to your mom and dad at this point, did your dad ever call or did you ever get advice from your parents saying, hey, dad, I think I'm looking to start my own agency or I'm looking to not take this job at Coca-Cola. Did they ever have any input or suggestions or on where to go? Or was that ever a factor? So at, at age 23, my parents split up and divorced at age 20, my age 25, I pretty much went towards my mom in that relationship. And so she, she was really more supportive of anything I decided to do. The, the relationship I had with my dad became fragmented at best. We stayed in touch, but it grew worse and worse over time. And I don't communicate with him any longer. Um, 
I wouldn't really look to my dad for, for business advice because I didn't, um, didn't believe his instincts and the way he had behaved when I worked for him was what I wanted to base anything on. And so I, I almost tried to do the opposite of what I thought he would do. Gotcha. Okay. That's interesting. So then you're opening up your own agency. This is late eighties probably, right? 1990. Okay. October 1st. Yeah. October 1st. And, remember the day. Good for you. Wow. Yeah. And, and you were, what was your vision? What, what did you want your agency to be? I mean, what was the idea? Uh, I was going to sell something every day so I could pay for food on our table. That was, it. <laughs> that was the vision. Food. That's the goal. Can I make enough food. to eat? That's food. Yes. Yeah. I, I, if I remember right, we had about an $800 a month mortgage and no, no income and a child on the way and one hooked up to a monitor. Oh, yeah. And what, what was the type of insurance that you were looking to sell? Anything. <laughs> so yeah. I had like three companies that were willing to appoint me out of the box. So anything that they were willing to write, I chased after. And essentially, Brandon, a lot of it was just very opportunistic, right? Things I could actually bind today. Yeah. And so was that difficult to get started? Was it common for somebody to start from scratch or at your age? Or, you know, sometimes it takes a lot of money to get into the insurance industry. They require a certain amount down or they require a certain amount of history um, or, or experience with the book of business. And I mean, what was it like? What was the environment like at that time frame? Yeah, so the, the five years of experience was really important. The two and a half years as an independent agent at Jardine exposed me to a number of relationships with underwriters and marketing people who were kind of my age in the, in the industry. They were very supportive of my getting started. They had witnessed my work ethic and my character and so forth. And so they were really helpful. And I think they were pushing for me to succeed, which was, which was really nice. Yeah. And in those first few years, did it take off like a rocket or was it slow growth? I mean, what was the result of your first few years in business? It's interesting. The first couple of months, it was just steady, you know, trying to write something every day. Literally, I would not go home until I wrote an account that day. Right. And then I got a call from a marketing rep saying they knew of an agency that might be for sale. The guy that owned it was older and wanted to sell and it was small. And would I be interested? And I said, sure. I went and met with him. Guy's name was Gene O'Malley, the O'Malley Insurance Agency, three people, including Gene. Uh, and, and I said, Gene, I'm Terry. I don't have any money, but I want to buy your agency. I'm not really sure what it is. Can you tell me how we'll do this? <laughs> <laughs> and it was almost like he was interviewing me to hire me, right? And I think he liked me and he basically said, I like you and I'll help you buy it. I'll finance it. And we structured a purchase. I think he had about 200,000 in revenue. And I think at, at that point I had about 50,000 in revenue that I'd built up in my agency. Lo and behold, as we're getting ready to close the deal, Gene passed away. So I thought, well, that's not going to happen. I went back to doing my thing. And then about two weeks later, I got a call from his wife. He said, Gene wanted you to have the agency. Do you still want it? And I said, yeah, but he was going to finance it. And she said, I, I know what he was going to do. We're, we're still willing to do that. Do you want it? And I said, yep. 
So that was my first acquisition about, you know, four months after I got into the ownership side of the business. So and 90 you started. How long until you started working with O'Malley? Right at the end of 90. Okay. So right Bought at 91. So that's pretty quick. I mean, that that's a foreshadow into your future career acquisitions and mergers and everything. I mean, that's pretty special to to have one so early on. It was very fortunate. And, yeah. you know, I, I, I think it all ties together, but it's the relationships with other people that wanted me to be more successful or at least somewhat successful. And they were willing to help me. Yeah. I mean, for an agency owner to finance his buyout at retirement, I mean, it's not super common. You mean, and then they carry yeah. on with the wife to do it. I mean, I'm assuming yeah. there was no contract. It was probably just a verbal, like a, you know, a handshake agreement. That's and, correct. And then the wife to carry on with that. That's pretty spectacular. Yeah. And shortly after that, I got a call from another insurance company, uh, branch manager, CNA. And she said they had a father son team that had about 250,000 in revenue and they were going to cancel their contract because they lost faith in their character, but they liked their production capabilities because they were really aggressively out there, you know, trying to generate business. And I was, I was like, what do you, what do you want me to do? And she said, well, can you manage them? Can you control them? Can you look over their shoulder and make sure they do it right? If, if you can, we would support you buying them and maintaining that book. So I met with the father, son, and their two employees. And I said, here's the, here's the skinny. They don't trust you anymore. They're going to cancel you. And they're like, yeah, they told us. I said, if, if you're willing to be managed, and I mean micromanaged, then I'll do this. No money down. I buy your agency. I merge it in. Instead of you losing your book of business because of your cancellation of your contract, you'll maintain it. And we'll figure out a way to compensate you for the value of the business. Yep. Wait, wait, wait. Let's pause here. I don't, what? Like, why would this, is this normal? This is a normal, right? Is this kind of thing normal in insurance? It's, it's, it happens. It's not as normal or as usual as you would, uh, you might suspect, but age, small agencies get in trouble all the time for various reasons. Usually it's financial. Um, and usually it has something to do with their trust funds the premiums that they've collected on behalf of the insurance company that they're living off of rather than paying over to the insurance company. Mm. That wasn't the case in, in, in this example. In this one, the father and son team were just not doing things they should have done. And Brandon will understand this. The cost of insuring a vehicle in Boise is different than the cost of insuring it 25 miles out of Boise at a, in a, different sort of uh, um, community, especially more rural, it can be much less, the territory of coverage. And they were playing with those types of things in their applications. They were covering everything. They were just getting their, their pricing benefit by misclassifying things. I see. So increasing the risk for the, the carrier. Is that my understanding? And, and, that reducing, and reducing the price so they could get the their deal. Their customer, right. I see. That's interesting. So it's kind of like a forced buyout a little bit, right? It's like, hey, you're got to be bought or you're kind of done. It was forced buyout by the insurance company. Right, I'm saying that. The largest carrier, yes. Now, did that, yes. that seems like it would be friction between you and this father-son team, but it was okay? I saved them. So they were so, like, you were like the savior. 
for that. That's that's exactly right. And and frankly, the son and I are still friends today. Interesting. The father's retired. So you're oh, good genius. with math, and you must have been okay with people because I I don't think this goes over well if you can't kind of be okay rough, not ruffling feathers, whatever. Well, you have to be able to have difficult conversations with people, right? Right. Especially when they do things that are inappropriate or downright ethically challenged, right? Yeah. <laughs> ethically challenged. Ethically <laughs> challenged. And, and you, you know, to have a conversation with somebody about these things, is it means you have to be able to look them in the eyeballs and say, you got problems and we either have to fix it or you have to leave. And those are your choices, right? Is that what like the police say? They're like, "Hey, you're legally challenged. You're right ethically now. challenged. No, yeah, not, you're, not legally. Ethically. Le you're legally challenged right now. You got problems. You got to fix them, or you got to go." I'm, I'm very interested to know how that worked out with the father and son because it sounds like they may have been humbled a little bit and not standoffish when you came in to help them. But I mean, in a typical situation, you know, they're they're in control. They're the boss, and then this young guy comes in and starts ordering them around that's Whipper not an equation yeah that's that's well, like not typically an equation for success there so the son was one year younger than me so that that issue wasn't a problem the father was quite a bit older of course but he was very meek whereas his son was much more aggressive uh, and i think that the combination of the two worked out well i was able to really look over their shoulders and approve every application before it went out. They were not, they were no longer allowed to submit applications to markets without my approval, without my review. Now, now why not, did they, go ahead. It's not a horrible position to be in relative to otherwise losing your income source. Yeah. Well, and you know, back at the time, Terry, maybe we can talk about how insurance was done, but Oftentimes now in today's climate and the world that we live in, you can click through a computer application, submit everything and approve it. In the past, it was forms, filling out these forms. And oftentimes I would, you know, an agency would fill out a form with the customer there, collect the money and their insurance is provided. And there's not a lot of opportunity for the insurance company to come back and say, wait, that's not, you know, that's not accurate or it was it was more difficult for them so they trusted the agency almost completely is that right that's correct and th at this time in 1990 this this agency this father and son agency was mostly doing contractors subcontractors insurance policies and so it mattered where their vehicles were located it it mattered what type of work they were doing and, and the applications, as you remarked, were handwritten or occasionally typed on a typewriter, right? So really no computer use at all in, in, at this point. Um, and when you lose the trust of the insurance company, everything changes because they no longer allow you to bind insurance, right? They take your binding authority away from you. When you're submitting things and they don't trust you, they already put your application to the bottom of the pile because they'd rather work on something for someone they trust as opposed to who knows, right? Right. And so when we could add the trust to the equation because the applications were coming from me and they trusted me. So this, this son, Steve, his book grew 
to about 250,000 in revenue over the next two or three years. So he more than doubled his revenue size. And it's interesting when, when he got to that point, I had some accounts that were larger than his. And I went to him and I said, Steve, you, you've got about 300 accounts. Now you're, you're about tapped out for time. If you're going to grow, we're going to have to provide you some incentive to move upstream on the size of accounts you're working on. So I'm going to give you one $30,000 revenue account to buy your smallest accounts away from you. And he's like, why would you do that? I said, cause I want to free up your time so that you're more productive. And I said, you know, you've got of the 300 or so accounts you have maybe a hundred of them add up your smallest ones, to 30,000 in revenue. Let's get rid of those from you. We'll turn them over to some other younger people that we've got on staff. I'll give you my account so you don't lose any money in the transaction and it'll free up your time to go after larger things. He did that. And five years later, his book went from 250 to a million 250 of revenue. And he had 60 accounts in total. So it worked out win-win for everybody. That was the story of that acquisition that happened in 1991. Gotcha. And so you're, I'm just assuming that your career just continued to grow as you acquired more and more agencies or what was the next big step? It did. So, you know, my book grew, my own personal book grew to about two and a half million of commission. In 1995, I had a partner and his name was Richard. And Richard was running the, the office and I was running the sales process. And it turned out one day that checks were bouncing with insurance companies. And so I went in and I took a look at everything and I was like, what the heck is going on here, Richard? And he couldn't explain it. And I said, you know, you, you told me you had agency management experience. He was about seven or eight years older than me. Turned out he didn't know what he was doing. We were $900,000 out of trust, meaning we had used money that wasn't ours. And I said, Richard, you're no longer in charge of the office. I'm going to be running the sales force and managing the office from now on. You can either stay or you can leave. I don't care but you're no longer running anything. And then he stepped aside. And fortunately for us, four months later, I sold my largest account, publicly traded waste hauling firm. I got a $500,000 down payment and a $1.1 million additional fee, 1.6 million a year of revenue to take this account over and manage it. Um, it had been an Aon account, Aon's largest account in the Western USA. It was an interesting story, Brandon, because they were an acquirer, a public company. At the time, my revenue in our agency was about four and a half million. Their premium was 57 million a year. Wow. <laughs> I'm 35 years old. I'm sitting in front of the board of directors of this company explaining to them why they should move from the second largest broker in the world to my firm. Wow. That's yeah, it was a really, really cool story. Yeah. Yeah. And so is that how you ended up getting out of the, the accounting situation you were in? Yeah, it was kind of like, I, I, if, if you picture back to the future when Michael Fox is up on the stage and he's playing his guitar and he's fading away and he's about to die, that's where I was. <laughs> <laughs> and I sold this deal and it's like, bing, all right, everything's, everything's bueno, right? 
So no. I'm kind of confused. Well, I'm concerned. I mean, Richard, like if you're a, are you a 50, 50 partner with Richard? I was a 50, 50. That's where we and, started. And it would make me very angry if I said, okay, Richard, just sit there. I'm going to do everything. I don't care if you sit there or not. I mean, I'd be like, Richard, you got to get out of here. And, you know, this is a huge problem. I don't want to deal with you anymore. Like, you need to leave. Yeah, I, I should have. My wife wanted me to do that. And all the other employees wanted me to do that. But I didn't. And it was probably a $10 million mistake. Because when I sold the agency in 2002 for $30 million, he got 10 of it. Uh, and yeah. He wouldn't have gotten any if I had just said, you know, you screwed up. You're out of here. Hmm. Yeah, that's is it generosity. Why? Why? Why did you do that? Um, you know what? I, I, you know, I can't really explain it today. It's probably an, it was an immature sort of um, Christian act, if you will, of, hey, you screwed up. But that doesn't mean you have to necessarily be punished. You just need to step aside and get out of my way so I can fix it. What did he do then? If he's not running the office, if he's not doing sales, he just became a producer. Okay, I see. Yeah. With 50% equity. Yeah. <laughs> so did, was that was that like an existential crisis uh, where you thought this could really put us out? Yes, absolutely. Because, I mean, that was like you they had the trust of these. And all of a sudden, now if they find out if this happened, you know, if it's something, I don't know how this works in insurance, but at some point, it's probably somewhat like a Ponzi scheme, I'm guessing, where you're going to run out if you keep doing this kind of thing. Absolutely. And, and what happens is it also hurts your agency's reputation because anybody at the insurance company that tells any other broker in town, it just it's like wildfire. So the, the news in the, in the ranks of the agencies in Arizona was that agency is a house of cards. It's going to fall. And but nobody could, nobody could understand other than the insurance companies that worked directly with me how quickly we fixed it and how dramatically we fixed it and how it was no longer uh, an issue or a concern. But those, those reputational issues hold on for as many years as people want to promulgate them, not knowing the facts. So did people know then? Well, they, they were aware secondhand, right? So people knew at the insurance companies where checks had bounced. Whenever that happens, that is really bad news. Yeah. So kind of there was like rumors, but nothing official. And, you know, so you, you had some reputation hit at that time. Yeah, because it, 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 as long as you make good on the premium that you owe an insurance company, you can maintain your contract and you own your book. But if you fail to make good on even a bounce check, they can come in and shut you down and take your book from you. Got it. So the pressure when you're trying to sell this largest, you know, the largest sale of your life of one of your customers that must have been pretty immense. It was very immense, Brandon. So I'm sitting there thinking I, I'm, I've got to play somewhat hardball with these guys because I'm going to tell them exactly what I want and exactly what they need to pay me to hire me to be their broker. And at the same time, my competition is the second largest broker in the world. I don't have any other publicly traded companies as clients. I don't have any other clients in the field of waste management. I'm 35. I'm on the precipice of, of losing my livelihood. And all I can do is keep working it forward. Yeah. 
And I, I don't understand why they would even give you the time of day, Terry. I mean, they must have had some issue with their prior broker, but you know, it's a, that's, that's a great story itself. If you want me to tell you a little bit about it, that's why we're here. Go for All it. Right. Yeah. So this public company moved from Chicago to Scottsdale um, about a year earlier. We all were aware of it because it became one of the biggest accounts based in Scottsdale, Arizona. The risk manager was an Italian from New York. I'm an Italian from Chicago. So I made an introduction to him and said, hey, would love to work on your account sometime. He said, never going to happen. <laughs> I was like, ah, Tony, why not? And he says, well, the CEO of our company, Tom Van Wilden, is best friends with the broker at Aon, the CEO of the Chicago Aon office. And the chairman of the board of our company is best friends with the DNO broker out of Texas. So there's no way you'll be able to replace those relationships with anything you do. I said, okay, that's, that's fair. That's a, that's a, that's a hurdle to start with. Um, what is Aon doing for you to make you happy? And he said, absolutely nothing. I said, okay, well, that's, that's good news. What, what could they do that would be helpful to you? And he walked me into a room full of banker boxes. Each one of those banker boxes was full of information from an acquisition they had done in the last three years. And I said, how many acquisitions have you guys done in the last three years? He said about 150. And I said, what's in those boxes? And he says, all the insurance information. And I said, have you gone through all that already? Or has your broker gone through all that? And he says, nobody's even looked at that stuff. We don't really know what's in it. We just know it's all of the history of the insurance of all the acquisitions we did. And I said, you know, that should probably be in file cabinets and organized and maybe a couple of spreadsheets around um, things like three line retro exposures that you have. And he says, what's that? And I said, well, a retro is a general liability auto and work comp policy that's common in your industry, especially for smaller companies. And what happens is at the end of each year, depending on your claims, they send you a bill for how much more money you owe them. Those are called open-ended retros, and that's what you have in those boxes. And he's like, well, how do we know how much we should be like paying? And I said, well, that's your broker's job. Ask him. And he said, my broker doesn't know anything about this stuff. And I said, well, let me do you a favor. I'm going to help you become a better risk manager. You let me and my team straighten out your files and do the spreadsheets for you. You take it to your board, your CFO, and you explain to them what your liabilities are, and you're going to be a hero. And he said, well, why would you do that? And I said, because I like you and I want to help you. And he says, you're not going to get our account. I said, I know. Just, just roll with me. Let me help you. So he said, well, this would be really, really helpful. And so, yeah, I'll let you do it. So I, me and my team went in and we did that. We identified about 50 million a year in outstanding liabilities that they were going to be billed for. And I showed it to him and explained it to him. And he says, can, can you do this with my CFO? I said, sure. Met with him, explained it to him. He says, holy shit. Um, can you explain this to the board of directors? And I said, yep. So I went into the board of directors meeting, armed with all this information. I explained to them what the broker could be doing for them, what I would be doing for them if I was their broker. I said, 
I would be involved in your M&A process. When you do your next transaction, you would take me with and I would meet with the risk manager on the other side of the table representing your interests. And I would help you uncover during due diligence what they're hiding from you in these exposures that you're going to have to be financially responsible for going forward. He's like, nobody's ever offered to do that for us. I was like, well, I've done a few M&A transactions already. Now, albeit not, not as large as the ones you do, but similar issues, similar process. M&A stands for mergers and acquisitions for yes. anybody that's never heard that. Wow. So the long and the, and the short of the story was they asked me to leave the room. I did. They brought me back in about 15 minutes later and they said, we'll get you a check for $500,000 tomorrow. For commission? To hire me. So that was my fee that I requested to be hired to take over their policies on a broker of record letter and to fix everything for them. Plus a $1.1 million a year commission. That went to your agency. Yeah. So the 500,000 and the oh. 1.1 combined went to my agency. Okay. So let me just recap. Yep. You kept giving them bad news and they kept pushing you up the ladder to give more bad news. And then you, because ultimately they would owe that money, correct? That past due premium. Yes. That's and so correct. you took it to the, to the CFO and he said, well, I don't want to give the board that bad news. Well, he <laughs> actually you do it. CEO next. And of course the CEO didn't want to, be responsible for that bad news either. So they both kind of brought me into the board meeting. <laughs> Listen to Terry. He's going to give you the bad news. It's like essentially what happened. And then you somehow wrap that all up and they paid you money to tell them that. <laughs> they they paid me money to tell them that because I was telling them they needed to fire their broker and hire me. They did both of those things that next day or that day. And, um, I kept that account for three years and I used the money each year to buy other agencies. So that was a big deal. I mean, I always struggle when I'm, when I'm looking at large, large accounts that um, make up a huge portion of my income because it's very stressful. You know, they own, they, they kind of dictate to me like you have to do this or we'll leave and you will lose X amount of your, of your income, of your salary. That's right. And so, you know, obviously it was a big deal because you were in a tough, tough position trying to make your way back with these insurance companies. I mean, what was your thought process? Did you go out and celebrate with your wife, you know, steak and wine, all of that? Or, or where were you yes. at? <laughs> yeah. I celebrated and then I protected that account with my day-to-day -day activities. Yeah. And I immediately went on a, a hunt to acquire other agencies to replace the income. Because you knew... Someday yeah. it's going to go away. It's, it's the biggest target. I've got a target on my back. It's the biggest target in the Western U.S. Every broker is going to line up to try to steal this from me somehow, some way. Gotcha. So you already accounted for the fact that, okay, as many, the amount of time that you would have this customer is just gravy, just icing. That's exactly right. Okay. Most importantly, it, it saved my agency. Secondly, it gave me a great deal of um, credibility with the insurance companies and the brokerage community. And, and lastly, it gave me the funds to go out and replace the revenue that it had, that it had supplied me, knowing that it was going to go away eventually. And so when they switched over to you, they didn't switch insurance companies. Were you, were you appointed with the insurance company they already had? 
No. But so, it was pretty easy to get the appointment with the broker of record letter. Oh, gotcha. Okay. And so you you were appointed, you got you newly you got newly appointed once they said we want Terry to be our agent. Yeah, so the, the largest, the lead company was AIG, and I did have an appointment with them. Okay, gotcha. But none, nobody at AIG knew me. I mean, the biggest account I had with them was maybe 50000 a year. Yeah. And so you went from the biggest account being 50000 to being $57 million or whatever it was that they paid. So then, yes. and, and I'm curious, too, because you took the money, you said, to get back in the good graces with the insurance companies but also to do mergers to buy more agencies that was that early on was that one of your focuses and goals just to continue to buy more agencies well i wanted it to be part of what i was doing so i, I felt like my my roles were lead the agency lead in production as a producer and and lead the m a process to keep growing okay and then so this was a a big portion or a big hurdle to overcome um, was there any other time? I mean, did you just continue to grow and grow and grow for forever more on and on and on? I mean, what was your end goal in there? The, the partner that I had that I mentioned before became obstinate as time went on. He felt like I had pushed him out of his deserved role. The other producers in the agency didn't uh, give him any consideration. They didn't respect him. And it became a real thorn in my side. Literally would cry in, in a meeting with me. Um, a grown man, seven years or whatever, eight years older than me, crying that I'm not treating him like he deserves to be treated. I said, buddy, I just made you a multimillionaire. Shut up, go to the country club, write an insurance policy every once in a while and stay out of my way. Well, he became such a thorn in my side, I decided to sell the agency. And I did. I sold it in 2002 to a bank. So I kind of am glad I'm your partner now. <laughs> that sounds like a good deal for the people you're with. You know? it's like, Just go you to the country club, work. write a policy here, here and there, yeah. Brandon, and enjoy your millions. Yeah, and then just talk to Terry. Look, I sold a policy, Terry. What's your problem? <laughs> what do you want from me? Yeah. How I much mean, more could you possibly want? Yeah, that's fascinating. Why didn't you just buy them out? I mean, why did you sell everything? Um, I just felt like it was the best way to disentangle the ownership. I didn't want to write him a check out of uh, or borrow money to pay him, right? So sold the whole thing. Like I said, for $30 million, we had $3.5 of acquisition debt. So $26.5 million of cash came in. By that time, we had a handful of other partners. Say hi. Hi. Oh. And those other partners uh, were minority owners in the agency. And so I wanted everybody to get their money. And, and that's what we did. And the goal in selling to the bank was that they were going to provide me um, acquisition capital. Is this a gummy? Thank you. Um, and that acquisition capital would be used to grow all over the Western U.S. Well, as luck would have it, 30 days after they acquired us, and I distributed the money to everybody. The CEO and the chairman of the board of the bank came to me and said, uh, the OCC tells us we're undercapitalized and we'd like to borrow some of the money we just paid you back. And I was like, uh, I thought you had enough capital to fund my acquisitions. Well, maybe not. Ish. Ish. So I was PO'd. 
I loaned them $5 million. It couldn't be in the form of a loan. It had to be in stock. So it had to be preferred perpetual stock to be considered equity under the OCC rules, which meant that they didn't have to pay it back until they wanted to. So I made the interest rate high enough, 9%, that they would want to pay it back as soon as they possibly could. And two years later, I got the money back. And then I left because I didn't trust the guys. And did you have to do that? No. Okay. So I didn't have any stock. I didn't have any stock in the in, in the in the you bank. Could have walked away. Could have walked away as a publicly traded bank uh, on the Nasdaq. I was a director because part of my employment agreement was I immediately became executive vice president president of the bank, CEO of insurance operations, and a member of the board of directors. Well, as a board member, you know you have fiduciary duties and things like that to the other shareholders. Here I am, a young guy, fairly wealthy, much wealthier than the the two uh, executives at the bank. They owned about half of 1% of the outstanding stock together. So they weren't big shareholders either. They were just uh, salary guys. Uh, And they were obviously not honest. And so they had been dishonest with me. They had misled me on what they could do. So I left after the two years after I got my money back. I stayed on the board one more year to harass them. And then I left that position as well. So that's 2002, the sale happens. 2004, you leave the bank. Is that right? That's right. There's another inside story to this one that's really interesting, right? So the first annual meeting took place in Scottsdale about um, July. It sold the business in April of 2002. The, The majority of the shareholders of the bank, which was formed, founded, and headquartered in Bismarck, North Dakota, Three of them had flown in for this meeting because they were like, what the hell did you guys just do in buying this insurance agency? I thought we were a bank. And how did you spend so much money? And what the heck is going on? And they were just roasting the CEO and the chairman of the bank at this meeting, right? And at this point, I didn't own any of the, the bank, right? And then finally, one of them says, and who is this scholarly guy that got all this money? And I was sitting there and I said, that's me. And and one of the shareholders says, can you tell us what's going on? And I said, yeah, first, let me start by saying, if you're unhappy with the transaction, the stock had fallen, by the way, from $8.50 a share to $5.50. I said, I have my checkbook in the car. I'll buy every single share that all of you own right now. $5.50 a share. So you'll buy the bank. Everybody shut up, right? Well, it's public, right? So he's going to buy their part. He's well, not gonna I was, buy, he's I was buy willing it. to buy all of their shares. They owned about, together, about 20% of the bank. Right. Oh, gotcha. Okay. Okay. And they're like, you'd okay. Be, us- you'd be the board then at that point, though. Yeah. So they said, tell, tell us why you would do that. And I said, well, you just bought my agency. It had $10 million of revenue, $3.4 million of profit. That $3.4 million is going to flow through the, the public uh, bank uh, coffers as earnings and the value of the stock's going to go up and my agency is going to keep growing and the bank's going to keep going up in value. I said, it's really simple. I'll buy your shares today. And they said, let's go out to dinner tonight. Oh, okay. The CEO and the chairman didn't say a freaking word the whole time, not anything. They just were like afraid of these guys. Right. So I go out to dinner with those guys that, and they're all related, you know, farmers in North Dakota, uncle this and uncle that and nephew this 
go to dinner and we have a great dinner. They're like, we love you. You, you keep doing what you're doing. We're going to stay invested in this thing. It's going to be fine. Two years later, stock was $17.50 a share. But the inside story that's great is even though I didn't buy any of their shares, I put an open order in at $5.50. I bought 8% of the bank that summer. So I did okay, five fifty to yeah, definitely. Plus the interest on that loan, right? Plus nine percent on five million. Yeah, nothing for two to, years. Yeah, yeah that's awesome. to be sad about it all. So then, what was the next stage? Golf, well, right? I, you know, golf. That, as I said, I didn't trust those guys, right? So I left. Made money on the stock. Made money on the sale. It. I had grown the agency in that two years to about seventeen and a half million of revenue from ten. So we were doing really well, but You're I just didn't like you guys. Huh? 40? How old are you at this point? I was 42 when I started, 44 when I left there. 44 when you left. So, and, and enough money to live on. You didn't have to work again. No. Yeah. No, but I, you know, I'm one of these guys now that's worked his whole, basically his whole life, right? I, I, 12. I kind of enjoy, kind of enjoy working. Um, so I went out and I started another agency from scratch. Uh, I bought... 15 agencies in four and a half years, put it all together, 21 and a half million of revenue, 14 partners. I owned 54%. They owned the balance. Each one that I bought, the majority of them were 55 to 65 year old principals. And I told them, listen, I'm gonna put all this together and then I'm gonna sell it. And, and if you wanna keep some equity in it, you can. So some of them took all cash. Some of them took a blend of cash and stock. Uh, and I reached out to NFP in 2010 and I said, you know, you guys don't know jack shit about property and casualty insurance, but you've done 1.1 billion in revenue in life and health insurance. Do you want to be in this space? And they were like, who the heck are you? Yeah. And I said, well, I was talking to the executive vice president of M&A at, at uh, he's now the president of the company at NFP. Mike Goldman's his name. I said, Mike, in your email inbox is the four and a half years of financials from the acquisitions I've done in building my agency. If you're interested, call me back. If you're not, just throw them away. He called me back. He said, we're very interested. We'd like to come down and see you. They're all in Manhattan, New York. And I said, well, how many people are you going to bring? He said, nine. And I said, okay, how long will that take to set that up? And he thought 30, 45 days to get everybody's schedules worked out. And I said, do all these people come into the New York office each week? And he said, yeah, they'll, they'll all be here next week. I said, well, why don't I just fly there next week? Oh, okay. So I did. My wife's from Brooklyn. So it gave her a day to go shopping in Manhattan and me to, you know, spend a day with these guys. And if I didn't like them or they didn't like me, then so be it. I'd go to a show that night with my wife. We fly home the next day. As it turned out, they liked the game plan. Uh, they liked the idea. They kind of like me, but not that much. And so we decided to uh, go to dinner that night and they said, we want you to be the CEO of our property and casualty business. And we want to fund you to grow it into a monster. Okay. So who is NFP? So NFP is the 13th largest broker in the world today. I thought I've heard of them before. Yeah. You've heard of them before. I'm, I'm sure you've seen their logo around Brandon. Right. So just for everybody listening, my yes. mom, your mom, yes, NFP is an insurance company and it look and it sounds like they one. just did life insurance, health insurance. Yeah. At the time I joined them, they were doing 400 million a year of life insurance revenues and 700 million a year of group health insurance revenues. Gotcha. And by accident, they had acquired a couple of companies that had some PNC and they were losing money on that PNC brokerage business. 
And so when I proposed this to them, they liked it. They knew it would make their company worth more money to be in the property and casualty space, which is the larger space of those three uh, animals in the industry. They put me in front of the board about a month later because they were publicly traded on the New York Stock Exchange. So it rose to the level of a board uh, decision. They would be acquiring our company for a fairly large price, about 60 million bucks. They would be making me executive vice president of the company in a public company and CEO of this division, the property and casualty division. And so I met with the board. The board loved the proposal. They just loved it. They, 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 they were all what I would consider to be elder statesmen from the insurance industries or the financial industries. And they were like, we, we really need to be in this space and we like the game you're pitching and we want to, we want to be in it. So in um, July 1st of 2011, I sold the agency and I took over that role. And this whole time and that whole time I was based in Phoenix. I was commuting to New York about every four weeks, spending two or three days there, going around the country, buying agencies. From 2011 to 2019, I bought 100 insurance agencies in the US, Canada, and the British Isles and built a $500 million commission uh, and fee uh, property and casualty division that throws off about 150 million a year in profit. Whoa, that's like, it's, that's a lot. <laughs> <laughs> Was it? In 2018, they liked me enough to, to also add me to the board of directors. Yeah. Well, Terry, question. Was it always your plan to join NFP or a larger company? So when you left the bank and you started acquiring all of these different agencies and you said, I'm, I'm going to sell, did you have it with the intent to say, I'm going to sell to NFP and I want to work with them moving forward? Or what was your end goal? No. So what I had told each of the sellers that I was talking to when I bought their agency was, listen, I, I want to roll this all up together so that we all create a, a larger valuation you can keep as much equity as you want. When we sell this in a few years, when we get to scale, we're going to get a much better multiple than what you can get for the value of your agency today. So depending on what you need or want in terms of cash and equity, the bigger the bigger valuation is going to come a few years down the road if you want to hold on to some equity. And so I was I was trying to be as transparent as possible with everybody. This is I wasn't promising to maintain their agency name. We were all rolling into one name. I wasn't promising to maintain their cultures. We were trying to consolidate offices and costs and things like that. And that was our game plan. And it was, you know, kind of as much as I could, not knowing where it would end up, try to forecast some of those things and then live up to that forecast. And about a year and a half before we sold, I expressed to the, the ownership group, I call them my partners, um, that I felt like there were two opportunities in front of us. Either we were going to find a strategic buyer who's already in the business and who just wants to add more volume, or we were going to find a private equity sponsor and take it to another level being owned by a financial institution. We got offers from seven private equity firms and, um, their, their goals were just not in sync with what, what our goals were. Their goals were to, you know, grow it, cost cut, do things to employees that weren't really nice, like cutting their commission levels and things of that nature, um, and then sell it. 
and and without any concern to who the buyer was, just the highest bidder, right? A number of those things didn't settle well with me because I didn't like the idea of being sold to some anonymous high bidder that would likely do things to the staff and myself that we wouldn't enjoy. So I went down the other path of seeking a buyer that I felt like needed us more than we needed them. And so, you know, your experience at NFP when you came on and led the property casualty division, you know, the numbers you say just skyrocketed. And what was your experience like? Did you enjoy working with NFP? I mean, it's such a different, you were in charge of all of the agencies and your partnership. You were the majority owner. You were, you know, sounded like in charge at the bank at the time. And, and then all of a sudden now you're part of this larger corporation you're having to work within the the confines of their rules and structures and you were there for eight or nine years what was your experience did you enjoy it did you like it well there were things that i enjoyed about it because it was um it was a fairly highly intellectual group right a lot of um you know ivy league graduates with law degrees or financial degrees or you name it accounting degrees you know so a lot of bright intellectuals the lack, the thing they lacked was operational skills and experience working in a, an actual agency. They were a holding company that had been formed by Sandy Wiles' daughter, Jessica Bibliowitz. Sandy was the chairman of the board of, of uh, Citigroup, which included Citibank and Travelers Insurance Company. So Jessica was a sweetheart. I liked her a lot. Same age as me. Daughter of a billionaire. So by virtue of a billionaire herself. Uh, not not really focused on money as much as, you know, a project that we were looking to build out this company. The the rest of the team had been there since they were, you know, early hired on in the kind of 2000, 1999 to 2002 or three period. And they were all 10 to 15 years younger than me. I was 51 when I sold to NFP. Um, so I enjoyed the fact that they needed me because they didn't understand the business and they relied on me as their business partner to make sure we were doing the right things. And I tested it occasionally by asking them in decisions that I was making what they thought. And generally they would shake their head and say, you're the boss, you're the CEO, you decide, it's your decision, right? And so when your business partners treat you that way, it confirms that, you know, they trust you, they rely on you, and you have the authority and the wherewithal to make decisions, right? And, and that lived on for about seven years, the first seven years. And it started to change in the eighth year. And in that year, the new CEO, uh, who happened to have been the COO when I sold to NFP, his name is Doug, he began to challenge me. And so, Doug's an attorney, New York, uh, Columbia graduate, that sort of thing. And he began to challenge me on almost every decision. And then he started attending meetings with me and my strategic leadership group around the country. And he began to challenge their statements. And it wasn't that the challenges were the problem. It was that they didn't make sense, right? You have a guy here who doesn't have any experience whatsoever running an insurance agency. He'd run a holding company that owned insurance agencies, but never had stepped door, stepped inside the door for a full day inside of an insurance agency. And he would ask people like, you know, Brandon, you'll, you'll appreciate this. Rather than saying, 
how many trucks does the contractor have? He would say things like, what's the size of the group at the contractor? And the PNC guys would be like, well, what a stupid question. <laughs> yeah, what? I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> what is the group? <laughs> it's, a, it's a question that you might ask at a group health insurance meeting. Sure. Yeah. But not okay. at a property and casualty one, right? Yeah. And so he would trip over the acronyms and the his misunderstandings of the business in his oper, you know, in his in his, you know, goal to like insert himself into the day-to-day -day practices of the business. And it, it became a real thorn in my side. And so one day I just said, hey, if you want to run this effing business, then go ahead and I'll leave. He's like, no, I don't want you to leave. I just, I just want to have some input. And I said, well, you know, you, if you're going to have some input, make it intelligent. Don't sound stupid. You didn't say that. I did say that. And, and he's like, well, who the F are you? And I said, I'm the CEO. And he said, no, you're not. I'm the CEO. I said, well, look at my title. It says CEO. Now, if you don't want me to be the CEO, then just tell me you don't want me to be the CEO. But if you're going to treat me like I'm your employee, I'm out of here. Right? So, you know, with me, you get a little bit of an animal. It's somebody who, you know, <laughs> believes in what he's doing, treats people honestly, fairly, and very in a very transparent way. But if you're going to try to crap on my plate, then I'm gonna I'm gonna fight back, right? What do you What did he say? He's like, you know, is, isn't this all about economics for you? And I said, no. I said I made my economics when I was in my 30s and 40s. It's now about trying to build an enterprise that I'm proud of. If it's all about economics for you, that's great, but that's not the only thing that motivates me. So we, we had kind of agreed to disagree and he left me alone for about six months and, and, and then he became, you know, more onerous again. And I was like, you know, I think it's time for me to uh, retire. I said, so this was like 2019. I said, so I, I'm going to turn 60 in March of 2020, March 31st. Let's just make that my retirement date. He's like, well, you don't need to retire. We want you to stay on the board. And I said, in what capacity? He says, as a non-executive board member. And I was like, no, I don't think I want to do that either. So I said, uh, just put me down for retirement. Well, COVID hits in what, March? Yeah. 2020, right? Uh -huh. They know I'm leaving in 31 days and they re they call out to me and they're like, hey, we don't want you to leave. We, we need you to make sure this works okay. We're really not sure how it's going to affect the PNC business. Will you stay a little while longer? I said, okay, I'll stay until we're comfortable, until you're comfortable that everything's going to be okay. So the end of May, they, they were like, okay, it looks like everything's going to be okay. Do you still want to leave or do you want to stay? I said, no, I'm out. I'm out. What day do you want to make it? And they said, well, all right, so we'll do it the first week in June. So I retired the first week of June of 2020, played a lot of golf for the next year, ran in my handicap, went from like a 22 to a 13. Nice. So that was helpful. Uh, and then I got bored. I mean, you can only play so much golf. I started playing poker, Texas Hold'em at the casino. That was the only other thing I could do during COVID. They had up all those plastic cages, you know, and everything. So I play golf one day, play poker the next day, golf the next day, blah, blah, blah. But that got kind of old too. So about mid-2021, um, started uh, making calls to agency owners again, 
did three acquisitions August 1st of 2021. And so you got the itch. So working with NFP, that didn't sour you at all? Well, you know, each thing that I've been involved with soured me on certain things, right? Like, you know, the NFP um, business plan was rebrand everything to NFP, change all of the operating processes to NFP, make everything NFP green, right? And what I learned in acquiring 100 agencies where there was, you know, when I talked to 500 agencies, the other 400 were focused on not being changed, not going through a change process, right? And I thought, well, you know, there's got to be a model that we can create that would allow for acquisitions to happen, but not have to upend everyone's business in the process. And the other thing that I thought would be helpful would be to have partners who were intricately involved in the business, not just in name only, not just in ownership only, but actually people running the business. So that's what I aspire to. And that's what I've been trying to create. And so that started off your, your most recent career. That's correct. Right. And so, and so with the, with the idea to say, okay, well, you wanted to start building it because you wanted to get back in the game. You're tired of getting everybody's money in poker and golf. So you wanted to take, you know, um, your money and go acquire more agencies. I mean, was your wife, did she ever say, look, Terry, let's come on. Like, what are we doing? What's the end goal here? Did she ever say, look, we're, I'm ready to go back to Brooklyn. And, and I mean, what was the, what was her thought? No, her, her position was more like, uh, of, uh, I think more like the typical wife that's had her husband come home after being gone for years. Uh, on the road and going to work every day and being there for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. And she was like, time out, buddy, man. I love you for dinner, but I don't know about breakfast and lunch too, you know? <laughs> and so if you want to do something, go do it, you know? Uh, yeah. you, you don't, you know, she knew I had the itch. She knew I wanted to, you know, be entrepreneurial again. And plus our son is in this, you know, owns his own business that, finds acquisition candidates to buy so it was a natural to be back in business coordinating with my son joe so was it always a thought or a goal of yours to work with your kids well a, a little bit right so when they were in high school they each did internships during the summer at the agency and they each walked away from that saying i sure as heck don't want to do that Right. So mostly what they did was like data input or, um, um, gosh, uh, you know, with confidential paperwork, you have to shred it or destroy it somehow. And they did tasks like that. And they were like being locked up in office, you know, eight hours a day, having dad looking over your shoulder two or three times. No, that's not what I want to do. But in fact, my daughter wrote me a five page letter the end of one summer explaining why she could never do that again. <laughs> it was like this, like the, between the, the junior and senior year of high school. Gotcha. So she was pretty set on, yeah, dad, that's your thing. That's not my thing. Yes. Yeah. No, of yeah. course today she works in the agency in Newport beach. <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome. And so then, so your, your most recent project or your most recent career and what your thought is, okay, I'm going to buy agencies with, agency owners that are still committed to working and then you wanted to roll them all up and sell those or what is your what's no the I, so the, the the end game is much longer this time the goal is not to to roll them up and sell them it's to, 
to, to roll them up and provide avenues of liquidity for the owners. So that's, that's the reason for having a minority private equity um, partner at some point in the future, someone who's willing to acquire from the principal shareholders shares of ownership from them when they're willing to sell them so that we have some liquidity proposition for and otherwise you know these privately held uh, businesses like yours brandon you know the the shares are nice to own but they're not liquid right you can't just sell one day say oh i want to sell you know 100 shares or five percent of my holdings or what have you it's just not doesn't happen that way right but in our culture i'm trying to set it up so that that can be achieved gotcha um a couple of questions for me so what would you have done differently looking back um so in the first agency i would have gotten rid of the partner in 1995 when the you know defalcation came to light uh, i would not have sold to the bank i would have probably aligned with the private equity group and built that way and uh, in the NFP experience, had I known the outcome, I probably, again, would have aligned with a private equity group that would have been of a mindset that when they were ready to sell, the management team, including myself, would choose the right next private equity firm to align with so that we were in kind of in simpatico, in sync with goals and direction and that we would get that again with the next firm because they typically like to hold four to six years. So if we were going to have a outside majority owner and may, maybe even not ever allow for an outside majority owner and just grow it that way, gotcha. which is where I've ended up now. Right. Gotcha. Okay. And then Terry, so if you're talking to younger Terry, or even if you're talking to somebody graduating from the university of Arizona now that says, Hey, I want to be like Terry. I want to start my own thing. I want to grow. I want to be successful. And you had an hour to talk to him. What would be your advice? Well, I think it would be to find more people like me that have that experience, that that bag of, of history to share why not sometimes to do things and why sometimes to do things one way as opposed to another. Uh, find a mentor that you can trust and believe or several. Um, I unfortunately didn't have a mentor in my father that I could trust or believe in. And I didn't find one in a partner that I had. Um, and I didn't feel like I got it in the end at the partners that I had at NFP. Um, but you can still make it even if you don't have uh, great partners on your own, as long as you work hard and you're diligent and you just keep pressing forward. So my, my advice would be, be prepared to do the things that no one else wants to do, the things that are hard. Uh, be prepared to work harder than your employees work. And don't expect more from people than they're able to provide, or you will constantly be, be unhappy with other people. And if you accept people for who they are and accept from them what they are able to do and not expect them to do things that they're not capable of doing, you can be very pleased with the results you get from people. So that's an interesting attitude to have. I'm, I'm sure you got a lot of that from your father uh, on what not to do there, because <laughs> I mean, it's, it's not uncommon in older, older generations to say, look, I pay you money. You need to do 
everything the job requires of you to do exactly exactly correct and i know my father owned a business and he continually was frustrated with employees when i thought man they're really great they're they're doing so well and so it's interesting insight that you say that yeah it was um you know when you're when you're part of that employee group and you hear the remarks that are made after the conversation with the boss when the boss is gone even though they know i'm the the son of the boss you know they they lay it out for you like you know he's just being unrealistic you know i i'm working 12 hours a day i'm doing this i'm doing that and i was working with these guys so i knew what they were doing right i was i was part of the conversations they were having with the buyers at the grocery store chains and so forth right and so this this like you know whip the horses sort of mentality was something that i just didn't ever want to aspire to right i'd rather lead than be the boss right lead by example and let people who want follow right and frankly you get a much better relationship with people that way and and um if you're helping them succeed i I mean still to this day i get calls out of the blue from people saying hey i used to work for you 15 20 years ago and it's because of you that these things in my life happened and i wanted to thank you I, I, there's nothing greater than that, really. It, it's a wonderful thing. Thanks for listening to the Founders Podcast. Be sure to follow the host on Twitter. Search at Jord B. Hansen and at Brandon Minot to discuss more. Also, be sure to visit thefounderspod.com to join the conversation, access the show notes, and discover our fantastic bonus content.